0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now.
1: Hi, I'm Sasha and I'm a human. Welcome to Two Human for Words. Welcome back. Welcome to episode 2. I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad we can hang out together for a bit. I was trying to work out what I was going to tell you as my health and body check-in. But the truth is, at the moment, I'm so exhausted. I'm so tired. I'm trying to push on because it's all happening at the moment. I've just launched this podcast, which has been like ripping off a band-aid just you know, enough time talking about it, finally doing it. I'm working a full-time job, and I am <laughs> producing and performing in a short film with my production company that I have with a friend called Glassroot Productions, in case you want to follow along for the ride. But it's just all happened at the same time. And those two things are super important to me and things that I've really wanted to do for so so long. And You know, previously when I've wanted to do things and it seems so hard and especially when you're unwell that it just doesn't seem possible, but I am sort of just, you know, wanting to compare notes with you and ask like, how do you do it? You know, have you found a way when the things that you wanted weren't possible to find joy in other things or... When you did finally, after a long time of waiting and and sort of missing, being able to do things for yourself, get to do it, and and how did you manage that with your body and its needs? And did you push through, or did you manage to find some balance or pace yourself a bit? Because I know this isn't forever; that this is all at once, uh, and. I'm so grateful and glad that I can do these things at the moment because it feels like it is just feeding my self esteem and sense of self, but it's really hard, but at the end of the day, it's okay. I've definitely felt this way physically doing things that didn't feel nourishing and uh joyful, so you know what? I'm just really grateful that. If I'm not able to fully function and balance everything at the moment, at least it's because of of good things. So that's really something to be grateful for. So let's jump into the interview. Today's chat is with Dorothy Kamika. She is an independent health advocate with a background in nursing. And as a patient, I feel like you might, <laughs> you might know how hard and challenging the healthcare system can be. So, I mean, imagine how valuable it is to have someone looking at it from your point of view to advocate for what you need. I mean, what an incredibly important profession and how amazing will it be when this kind of professional is just a normal part of our system. So, here is Dorothy. I'll see you on the other side. Okay, so I'm here with Dorothy Kamaka. Thank you so much for being here with me, Dorothy. It's a great pleasure. So this is my first Skype interview, and we're in different states. You're in Sydney, is that correct?
0: Yes, I'm in. I'm in Sydney. I have two bases in Sydney, um, one on the in the middle of the CBD and one on the Northern Beaches area. So Sydney is where we are, but, uh, you know, I do a lot of work all over Australia. So sometimes when I go into my office, I'm in Melbourne or (laughs) I'm in Adelaide, but my office is in Sydney.
1: Now you are a patient advocate. Can you tell me and our listeners a bit more about yourself and what you do?
0: Certainly. Importantly, I'm an independent patient advocate. So there's a distinction in uh, the health services between Patient advocates who are employed sometimes by a hospital, sometimes by a disease specific organisation like the Cancer Council, or and sometimes by drug companies or product companies, and they call themselves patient advocates. There's a bit of an anomaly in that because where well, they are actually advocates for whoever they work for, as opposed to being an advocate working for the patient. So I work independently, and the patient engages me. And I work specifically on their interests only. So uh, I work with anybody who is engaged in the health system, in aged care or in acute health care or in mental health care. And my role is to listen to what problems they're having with any of that system and decide whether or not I've got the expertise to support them. I work with a partner, uh, Alicia Dunn, and we joined up. She has a similar background in some ways to me, but she has a lot of experience in aged care and, believe it or not, at the other end of the spectrum, in paediatrics. And so if I'm not the person for a client and they call me, I might say to them, If you're okay with this, I want to discuss this with my partner. And maybe if you're okay, I'll get her to call you. So that's what I I do. I'm an independent patient advocate, solving problems that people see they have in health, acute health care, chronic health care, aged care, or mental health care. In my slightly deeper, darker past, I was a nurse and specifically I was an intensive care nurse. So for 40 years, I worked in intensive care. And then in the middle of that time, for about 16 years, I worked at the University of Sydney as an academic running a master's program for critical care nurses. And during that time, I had a joint appointment with a major teaching hospital to work at that hospital with my students. So I've kept my intensive care base all the time, and I went into education at uni for 16 years. And when I finished teaching at uni, I went back into clinical intensive care nursing. I I tried to retire, but I really don't have the patience. So so I um, failed retirement and went back to the bedside. And I think the 13 years or so that I spent back after retirement in intensive care, were the least pressurised, the most reflective, uh, the most rewarding, and ultimately the most frustrating years of my, my career life. But yeah, so that's me. I, I was um, brought up in a huge family of seven kids and loved every bit of it. And oddly enough, don't have any children myself. So I have grand nieces and great nieces and I love them to bits.
1: So how did you find your way into patient advocacy?
0: During that last period of time when I went back and I, to intensive care nursing and I saw it for the first time as not being necessary, as being optional. Here I was back there because I just loved it and I, I went back and my focus changed during that time. I, I don't know whether the quality of the care that I was working with really was all that different. I think it was more that when I didn't need any more to toe any party line, I started to see things from patients' perspectives. So I would be standing there with patients while they were dealing with information that they were getting, limited choices that they were being presented with, or limited information uh, on which they had to make decisions or they were not understanding what was going to happen in any disease process or treatment process. And I started to think, look, if I was this relative or this patient, I would hope that somebody would speak up for me at this point and express my needs and my wants or ask the questions that I don't know to ask and that need to be asked that would make a difference to the outcome of my illness or just of my care. So I became a patient advocate because when I tried to do that as a nurse, I soon realized that as an employee, the constraints on you are very, very firm. They are not subtle. You do not buck the system. Look up whistleblower anytime you like, and you'll see what happens when you start to step out of line. It doesn't work from an employee's perspective, even though actually I think one of the greatest myths is that nurses are a patient's best advocate. I don't think over time that really has stood the test of time and I think it's something that hospitals and some healthcare providers manipulate. They say to patients, you know, your nurse will advocate for you and the patient will have, I think, unreasonable faith that the nurse is in a position to advocate for them without fear or favor. So that's why I became a patient advocate. I thought, "Oh my goodness, no, no, no. Uh, uh, let me let me just say that this is what should be done at this point from the patient's perspective." And of course, like a lot of other patient advocates, something that happened back then maybe 10 years before I became an advocate, was that my own mother had a critical illness and was on a, a ventilator in ICU at one of the major teaching hospitals in Sydney. And I feared that they were going to make a decision that was not based on clinical grounds, but that was based on something a bit more expedient. I had started to detect a conversation that went along the lines of, oh, well, of course, she's 80. And I thought, what does that mean? Uh, you don't know her. You've got no idea what a vibrant 80 she is. You've got no idea what her wishes are. Oh, of course, she's 80 is a very controlling thing to say, and it should fill anybody's heart with fear. It means, oh, well, of course, we might allow some other model to intervene here or some other constraint. We might make a decision that isn't clinically based. It's it's not really valid. And sure as eggs, that's exactly what followed with my mother. And uh, long before she was due to have the ventilator removed, they removed it. I had asked them not to. I had told them I was coming into the hospital. Don't do it. I will be there. I want to discuss this with the uh, intensivist. But they did it. I think they didn't want to wait until I came in in case I might object. And immediately they withdrew the ventilator. She had a respiratory and a cardiac arrest. Then they reintubated her, they resuscitated her. I felt then that had I been a, an independent person and not a child who could be easily dismissed, had I been an independent advocate for my mother, had I said to them, I am Jane Blox, I'm the advocate for Mrs. So-and-so, I'm coming in, please don't extubate that person. They wouldn't have. They, I believe that the authority that comes with the role of independent patient advocate really works in the patient's or the relative's best interest.
1: I just wanted to go back and get some clarity on what you said. You said you were able to start seeing it from the patient's perspective. And What do you think stopped you from seeing it from the patient's perspective before?
0: I think I was very task-oriented. Um, my role was very defined not by me but by the institutions I worked for. There's a certain hierarchy of power in a hospital. So although a lot of nurses uh, value their clinical decision-making skills and they talk somewhat about autonomy, it's very limited. So in the past, I tended to follow the line that the institution took, which was believing what they thought was in the patient's best interests. And when I went back after being away from clinical nursing for a year or two. And when I went back and I realised I had now had a different view about my job, I didn't care if I got sacked. I wasn't interested in whether other people disapproved of my taking a non-party line. I would do it because I thought the patient's perspective was important.
1: So it was that time of being away from it that gave you that perspective?
0: It was a bit. It, it was it was mm. the time, but it was it was the change of onus that was on me.
1: Oh, okay. I,
0: I really had previously thought I am obliged to be a member of this team. When I went back and after that period of time, and then I didn't feel like that. I thought, no, my responsibility is to the person in the bed or the relative standing next to that person, and so uh, I started to just see things without that enormous mushroom over me.
1: Yeah, it's so interesting because it does seem like a battle as a patient when you feel like, you know, coming into the medical world for help, that it shouldn't be a battle. It seems counterproductive for why you're there. So I feel listening to you talk about your change of perspective, it's sort of like what as patients we're fighting for all the time. And why I think once you've been a patient for long enough, we feel like we're a professional patient because we start to see all these things that perhaps aren't seen from the other side when we are talking to medical professionals.
0: Look, I I think that's Absolutely, the essence of one of the difficulties that patients encounter when they're in the health system, acutely or chronically, is that they lose their identity a bit. They lose the confidence that they would have of their own abilities and common sense. That is undermined by being in an alien world and a world where knowledge, the ownership of that knowledge, is with the professionals and It's a very difficult thing to have a technical conversation with somebody about treatment that's being proposed or the course of a disease. And it's very difficult for you to then talk about your feelings or your needs or your hopes. A lot of patients feel that that's trivial. They don't, they can't raise those things. They're somewhat intimidated by the the superior position of a health provider. And my experience with people is that they often say to me afterwards when I do intervene and say, well, three days a week dialysis at such and such a hospital until you can have a, a transplant or your kidneys recover is a, an onerous business. But I understand it's a life-saving strategy. But what I want to know is how this is going to work for Susan because it's her life and what we have to do is make the dialysis support her life, not the dialysis overwhelm her life. She isn't a pair of ruined kidneys. She is Susan, who needs support for her kidneys until she recovers. And a lot of stuff in health is focused on diseases, operations, diagnoses, tests, but It's important that at the basis of that, the needs and the specific goals of the person who is in the system is paramount. And it wouldn't be any surprise to you or to anyone who's a patient in the health system that the model is really all about delivery. It's not about receiving. So it doesn't matter how many times people will say patient-centered, patient-oriented. In fact, The more often they say that, the more suspicious I get, especially on websites. But the fact is that if people paused and really dug into for the patient themselves how it was working for them, then I think they would discover something very important. And I I think it would build a connection and a trust and a reasonable trust between the patient and the system but it doesn't happen all that often. The words are there, but if Susan says, look, actually, I don't think I can have this at Hospital A, I live much closer to Hospital C, then there will be all sorts of barriers often thrown up to accommodating Susan's needs and wishes and goals. And the fact of the matter is that it's a very delivery-oriented model. It's a system-oriented model. My great wish is that People would stand still who are delivering any service in healthcare and say to themselves, just quietly, I am you. I'm just trying to stand in your shoes for a minute. Just let me think. I'm you. What what's it like to be you? Just I just want in my mind, I just want to go through this next couple of statements I'm going to make and think if I was you, how would it be? I'm going to walk a mile in your shoes, as they say. So yes, I I think it can be very difficult if you're in the system to maintain, you know, it sounds like one of those, you know, sort of uh, truisms, you know, to maintain your identity, but it is true. It, It is very difficult to do that.
1: So when I was first really sick, I was told by someone who was a nurse at the time doing an assessment on me that, oh, you just have to be your own advocate. And at the time that was an extremely emotional thing to say to me because I was struggling just to get out of bed, let alone Google or speak up for myself. And so I want to talk more about being an advocate either for yourself or how we find advocates as patients, because I've been through this for nine years or so now, and I'm really only learning about patient advocates now. So what do you recommend to patients to help themselves and also in finding a patient advocate for themselves?
0: Well, remind me to come back to the finding a patient advocate because that I think infers finding a professional patient advocate. But in terms of the first issue, you will start out going through life with people whose capacities and skills you know are balanced in one direction or another. So you've got friends who are who are really good at unconditional support. You've got friends who are balanced and who can see the forest for the trees in an argument. You've got friends who are very well organized. You've got friends who are very available. So I think it's a good idea before you get sick, just when you're thinking in general about who your network of supporters is. And everybody has a network of supporters, I do. And you think, it's interesting, you know, I think that person is the sort of person who is not easily fobbed off, who has got good analytical skills, has the language skills to assert themselves without being confrontational, who will be available to come to a, a medical appointment with me if I need someone. So I think without your friend or your your relative knowing you're doing it, you should say to yourself, interesting, That honestly, I've got family who just absolutely go to pot, you know, when they're confronted. I have one member of my family who just tears people's throats out on the first day. Terribly, terribly able in another sense, but not somebody I would have advocate for me in a health situation. I think people should, if you like, train up another person who they know very well, maybe a couple, just say to them by way of a conversation, sometimes I look at you and I think, Lord, you'd be a good person to have around if I ever needed a health advocate. You've got exactly the right kinds of mindset and skills that I think would work wonderfully to support someone who was sick and just you know seed the idea that that's where you're coming from then i think in terms of developing your own skills start looking up websites about how to be a patient advocate so What skills does an employed patient advocate have? There are a couple of wonderful publications out there that are are very good to teach yourself how to be a patient advocate and then start trying to adopt some of those strategies yourself in a completely non-acute setting. So try using them just in an ordinary meeting with your GP or when you're going to have a flu shot. I'm not talking about changing the course of treatment or anything like that, but this is a an idea that means you alert yourself to when controlling language is being used or when barriers are being erected to what's in your best interests or even to think, is that suiting them or is that suiting me? So over time, I think it's a good idea for people themselves to start asserting themselves, thinking about things, just tweaking how they're treated from the perspective of their own goals and best interests. So by the time you get into a situation where you do feel that there is some urgency in the matter, you are not suddenly for the first time trying to achieve something that is very important, but without having honed these skills a little bit more than from a a standing start. In my mind, you can be your own advocate. I, I have a couple of clients at the moment who were the family member is an advocate for them. And I think both of them are very capable. I think both of them have got the fatal flaw of emotional imbalance. That is to say they are so emotionally imbued with the the problem that they tend to become emotional in any discussions. And that makes them very easy to discount. And if somebody is trying to assert their preferred model over the patient's preferred model, then the one thing that doesn't work is for them to become emotional or to have a chink in their armour that is easy to exploit. So one of my patients, he's a fantastic guy. I don't know how old he is actually, but his wife is 78 and she's in a hospital up on the north coast, up near the, the coast between Queensland and New South Wales. And his wife got sick when they were in the UK in May of this year. She got type A flu. She was hospitalized immediately in the UK. She was critically ill. She had a tracheostomy and she was repatriated to Australia and got back here after five or six weeks in intensive care in the UK. She got back here in July and he has been trying to achieve a rehabilitation program for her there is a mindset amongst her medical providers back here she still has her tracheostomy the mindset from the providers is oh, she's 78 you know mm. so my client says they don't know how much progress she's made i have been with her through this entire illness she is doing very nicely. She certainly isn't ready to have a tracheostomy out yet, but she is coming along and I want this to be a plan to get her back to as well as she possibly can. I do not want a limit on the expectations until she sets that limit herself, until she fails to progress. He mm-hmm. is an expert on her But all along in conversations that I've been having, phone consults with her physicians, he is being displaced as having any Mm -hmm. significant role. He's being patronised a bit. Everybody starts the conversation, which is another one of those things that sometimes sets my teeth on edge by saying, oh, well, so-and-so, we really respect your views. Pause. Mm -hmm. But, and Mm -hmm. you need to understand that kind of language. What you don't understand Uh, Let me explain to you. And so immediately he is squashed. The idea is you are not being realistic. Your goals are not goals we value or that are achievable. They don't necessarily listen to the goals expressed from his perspective. But in my mind, one of the things that is a difficulty is that people then sort of abandon their confidence and their you know, even just common sense. You know, he, he says to me things like, how can it be right for somebody be, to be left in bed for three weeks just because she's got a tracheostomy? And I say, well, well of mm. course it isn't right. Of course it isn't right. And then he says, but I have asked for her to get out of bed. And I'm told, well, what do you think we're going to achieve? And then he has to, mm. you know, it's all put back onto him. So he has a lot of skills. He is a good advocate for his wife. And he really just needs to gain the confidence to, know that he has achieved a huge amount. He will go on to achieve a lot more and Mm -hmm. he shouldn't be intimidated by his lack of, if you like, expert medical knowledge when what he really has is a huge amount of motivation, a very clear set of goals and he's the expert on his wife. I think that what people should start to do to prepare themselves to be much more successful for themselves and as supporters for their friends and their family, they should start to practice becoming competent advocates themselves. Now, it will have a limit. Most people are not health trained, so they're not necessarily health literate. And health literate means uh, understanding the language, of course, but understanding how hospital systems work, understanding how private versus public systems work, understanding how doctors work, understanding... All how you you get access to health services, that's health literacy. And if over time you were to ask some of the questions that you think people might find irritating or just a bit intrusive when you're going through your own health issues or someone else's health issues at a very subacute level, then you would become a lot more prepared for when you've got to move to that next level up. So in terms of How do people prepare themselves? I think they do it when it's not urgent. It is absolutely true that people are experts on themselves and on other people, but doctors are experts and nurses are experts on healthcare and treatment. So don't ever discount where your value lies. The next thing I would say, the the second part of your question was, how do you behave in a healthcare setting? so that you can make that setting more effective to Mm. see you better. I think you've got to use, I think people should use a lot more, I'm feeling, I sense, I don't understand or I don't want or I don't value, rather than any sort of confrontational or accusative language. Because if you make your problem somebody else's problem or your query somebody else's issue to solve, then you have shifted, if you like, the onus from you to them in terms of meeting your goals. So you you say something like, let's go back to Susan, who was the dialysis lady who has been told she would go for three days a week to hospital X. If you say to the provider who is recommending that, you say, I can see where that's going to be necessary. How do we get around the problem that Susan lives 70 kilometres or 20 kilometres from there and has to be at work at 8am? Can you see a solution for us to getting that service so that it works best for Susan? And mm-hmm. think before you address these issues, so much in health is emotional that people tend to say things in language that gives the receiver of that language an excuse to resist you. To set up a barrier, and you need very slowly and very effectively to make that person work for you in the health system. So even down to saying, "I am afraid that that can't work for me." I just want to say to you, look, just walk a mile in my shoes. I'm going to describe my my life for a moment here, and I want you to just tell me how you would progress here if you were me. I work at Parramatta now. This service is being offered 35. Minutes from where I work. So I fear that I will lose my job if I'm trying to have the dialysis, but also stay employed. How can you see this working for me? Mm -hmm. Just be me for a minute. I think people can, if they think in advance about how they would deal with things, or if it happens to them acutely and it's way out of control and they haven't got any, they haven't got any preparation, then There's nothing wrong with saying, just give me a minute. I just want to think about that. I'll get back to you in two seconds. Can you come back and see me in about five minutes' time? I just want to think about it. And then just compose yourself and work out what language might work or how you want to focus this conversation and work out what language would work for that. So you're being given this choice or that choice, and the pressure is on you to make a choice about either one of those two things. Well, what you haven't thought is what else might be out there? Are there other mm. choices? Do I have to do either of those things? This is something I see all the time with oncology patients or with patients, cancer patients, who are being offered uh, oncology options. And, you know, there's surgical oncology, there's medical oncology, there's radio oncology, there's all sorts of options for patients who are facing a cancer diagnosis. And there's what I call the South of France option. There's the do nothing option and enjoy what what time I've got left. But there's a lot of talk that goes on in a meeting between doctors and their patients, which is uh, the evidence shows I recommend most of my patients do this. And the impetus, the momentum is – hurtling towards a choice between options that the patient may not value or, or may not totally understand in that short period of time. So my suggestion to people who are thinking about their life ahead in as much as health care, aged care or mental health care is concerned is to start thinking before you need to do it, before you need to be an accomplished advocate it's a good idea to prepare yourself well and about every single one of us is going to end up old, is going to end up sick, is going to end up with old parents and sick relatives and it, it, it is never going to be a wasted skill.
1: Yeah, and I think it can be a positive thing, not a negative, you know, sort of for when you get sick or if you get sick but a positive for being assertive in general and feeling empowered in your life. Now, I'm just going to pause us there okay? and we're going to dip out of this conversation and into the D&M game quickly. So this totally breaks it up and breaks the mood, but we'll come back to what we were talking about in a few minutes. So we're going to play the D&M game, which is where we pull two questions out of a hat that are quite lighthearted in comparison to what we've been talking about. I'll pull out the questions, then we'll both answer them. All right? Okay. So the first question is, what is your favourite comfort food?
0: Potato in any form. Potato <laughs> chips as in crisps, fries, mashed, baked, any form of potato.
1: I love almost Anything with cheese on top. Uh, It could be a pizza or just veggies with cheese on top, like steamed vegetables uh, with some cheese on top, and I love it. Ay, ay, yay!
0: I only ever eat cheese if it's cut and on a board. I never cook with
1: it. Amazing, yeah. So the second question is, what are three things you can't live without?
0: My iPhone, my Fiat 500, which... Truly, I'm going to be buried in. Someone is going to lower me into a hole in my Fiat 500.
1: So is that a car? we Are we yes, talking about a car? Of course. Yeah. Okay, great. Got it. It's the old Bambino. I, I
0: had one when I was 18 and I got one when they released the retro model and I love them to bits. And my tiny little grand things, as my niece calls them, my little grand nieces and nephews,
1: I cannot live without them.
0: They are so tactile and they are so innocent. I adore them. They're my three things. And you?
1: So mine would have to be, I would say, smoothies. I used to have them every day, but I still love them. And I'm going to lump these into one category, but like audio things, like uh, podcasts, audio books, radio plays, music. Okay. I always have to be listening to something or have some noise on. And so I always have headphones on me. And then the last thing, I probably have to say my phone. Yeah, I mean, I know that sort of covers audio stuff as well, but obviously a phone nowadays means a lot more. So, yeah, I agree. Probably my phone as well. Yep, we've we just bonded. So that was a quick little intermission. We'll jump back into our conversation now. One thing I've really struggled with that you shouldn't feel uh, is a massive barrier, but it's so expensive to be sick. And I know not just in this country, but even with... The amazing public healthcare that we have, it's still so expensive to be sick. It's expensive to find help when you can't work and don't have the ability to go from practitioner to practitioner until you find the right one. And so there's been times where like at the moment, I don't have a rheumatologist because I have fibromyalgia and that is the specialist that I would see but what happens is that I've seen a specialist and it hasn't been the right fit. It hasn't worked for me. And then I just don't have one. I do really believe in complementary therapies as well as Western medicine. I know there's a lot of different views, but I believe in finding the right mix. Uh, But that's an expensive endeavour and health cover is expensive and it doesn't cover everything. And so if you uh, can't work and can't do a lot to sustain yourself, what you have often goes just to your healthcare or you sacrifice your healthcare so that you have money for other day-to-day expenses. So as a patient, that's my main barrier. And you know, I'm stuck wondering, how do I move forward and be productive for myself if I can't afford a lot of help?
0: So many of my clients ring me up and, you know, we launch into, they're usually terribly sort of uh, fired up when they call me. And then at the end of the conversation, often on the first interview when we chat if they feel that I'm the right person for them then they start to sort of trust you and open up a bit and so many of them will say to me when did healthcare get so hard yes when did being sick get so hard and so expensive why is it that everybody thinks that in this country we have the best healthcare system in the world but i am suddenly discovering in brackets if you can afford it and you know there are ways of getting quite a lot of stuff subsidized or using the public health system for what it's good for and the private health care system for what it's good for if you happen to have private health insurance. But for a lot of my clients, they are worn down by fighting the system, by, by the barriers that are erected and by the sense that they are fighting for what they're entitled to or what they need.
1: I think that actually feeds in well uh, to one of the questions I'd like to ask you. One of the issues I have, and I know I'm not the only one with this issue, is what I call resilience fatigue. I don't know if there's another term for it, but I have fought the system for so long. I've been managing my illness for so long and then trying to move on with my life and balance life at the same time. I'm in a phase at the moment where unless I'm going through something acute, I really don't do much for myself because I'm just tired and I'm tired of having to give my health so much attention that I don't do other things it's so exhausting uh we will come back to people finding health advocates for themselves but yeah is there a way that you work with people who may be going through a similar thing and have this i i don't know if you have a better term for it. but for people with this resilience fatigue who are not nearly sick have lost that motivation and they're just trying to keep going
0: in your circumstance but with a huge number of my clients uh, one thing that I often say to them is look I think you need to take a healthcare holiday here you need to outsource your stress just for a while you might pick up some skills from me about how to deal with what's happening to you I can coach you as we go along but right now You have called me because you're at the end of your tether. You're probably not being as effective as you were when you started out because you're just exhausted and you're becoming intimidated. And the next step is that you'll capitulate. That is what the system does to people. There's no person in the system who's trying to beat you down. The system is an inhuman place. It's not human. It is full of procedures and processes and governance and all sorts of things Nobody in there gets exhausted because they're not people in there. It's a system. various mm-hmm. people who work there, but they're only looking after you or your issues or looking out for you and your issues, you know, an hour a day, an hour a week, an hour a month. You're looking after you and your issues in a relatively alien world 24-7, mm-hmm. seven days a week, and 365 days a year. So you don't wake up having had a day off yesterday or thinking, oh, Sasha's going to call me later today. I must think about, you know, what I want to do for her in terms of her rheumatology problems. You have every moment of your life is you and your health dilemmas and so you do get exhausted and, I, you know, this is part of a lot of what my clients call me about sometimes is relatively simple and I feel like saying to people sometimes, gosh, this isn't that big a barrier to climb over except that I know that it depends where they start from, you know. They've yeah. been at this for a long time. They don't have the strength left or they just are not prepared to be intimidated one more time. Mm-hmm. And it's a hard thing for a person to get on the line and say, I think I need help here. In seeking help, you're not handing over your life to someone else. You're just saying, no, no. well, you know, my cat swallowed a fur ball. I think I need to get over this furball. Mm-hmm. I'm worn out by this. This whole health mm-hmm. system is really getting to me and I'm not being effective. I think I need a patient advocate. And mm-hmm. then you just get on Google. Google Patient Advocate Australia so that you get a local person and you find that person and you... You call that person up and you interview them. You get a feeling like you did or did not with your rheumatologist. You you talk to them. You find out whether or not they are patient-focused, whether they're going to say, what is it that is important to you? What Tell me your goals. I know what your frustrations are, but what do you want out of this? Tell me at the end of the day, what are you hoping you can walk away from this with? And if you find the patient advocate who seems to embody the right approach to how to achieve your goals, then on a limited basis, go forward with that person, depending Mm -hmm. on who you or how you go into this, um, this contract, you know, it can be a very limited thing. I tend to say to my clients when they ring me, I give them a quote, I give them a time quote and a money quote. And I say that I would be very surprised if this is going to take more than four hours of my time. And then we talk about exactly what I will spend my time doing, what their priorities are, what they give me permission to discuss. I never make decisions for patients and I don't give medical or nursing or legal or financial advice. So I just say to people, Mm -hmm. here's the information. Now let me explain it to you. Let me see if we can personalise it to your circumstance and then Let's talk through what you feel you'd like to do to reach your goals. I have that conversation with my potential clients. And then I say, now, look, go away. Don't make a decision now. I don't like people making decisions under pressure. I've got my own, if you like, my own momentum. And people need to detach mm-hmm. themselves from that, same as they do from medical and, and health provider." momentum and then I say just go away I'm going to text to you pretty much what I've just said in terms of my terms and conditions you've heard a little bit about how I operate or how we might focus on your needs and goals text back to me when you've had a chance to think about it when you've had a chance to discuss it with your family or with whoever the patient is if you're not the patient and get back to me this is something that you need to take control of call me back Mm -hmm. text me back And we'll proceed from there. So when people stressed and they call up for help, they don't want to displace one lot of stress with another lot of stress. They need time to breathe.
1: When you first started working as a patient advocate, were there many other patient advocates around?
0: When I did my course... Uh, 32 people were in that group. I don't know what's happened since. It's quite a big industry in the States. I'm aware of about 10 people in Sydney who are working in the area because it's easier for the medical profession to maintain the level of control over patient interaction that they have because it suits their business model. I mean, first and foremost, doctors are in small businesses And accommodating an awful lot of flexibility and individualization can be an expensive thing for a medical practitioner. The AMA, some time ago, resisted the idea that people would choose an expert advocate. They seem to have relaxed that, and I have never had an altercation or a confrontation or even resistance from a a medical practitioner. I work incredibly collaboratively with a lot of physicians and get referrals from. So I suspect that, you know, a lot of them are starting to see patient advocates more and more. I certainly have had a couple of them say, oh, okay, do you know so-and-so? Or do you know so-and-so? So So, like I said, I had a partner when I set the business up and I still – refer to her because she's a specialist in rare and genetic diseases but she's taken some time out for the moment and I have attracted another advocate from a pool of applicants that I had so there are plenty of people out there I think Um, and I got somebody I thought just had the perfect balance to me so we could add extra skills. I don't really know how to establish because it's not an accredited health profession in Australia. My registration is still as a registered nurse. So patient advocacy in Australia is not yet accredited. It has just become accredited in the States and the first bar exams have just been held there but not here yet.
1: Yeah, so I was just wondering for people who are patients and have gone through illness, are still going through it or or have come out the other side and said, oh, wow, I have all this knowledge and perspective that I never would have been privy to had I not gone through this and it may have been a really painful experience but they gained a lot of value from it and want to use it in some way. Do you think there is an opening for people with lived experience to give back and provide something with all that they've learned?
0: Here's my perspective and I know this is you know from a very exclusive position but I absolutely believe that a patient advocate needs to be able to mix it in the health field in every possible way they need to understand an awful lot about clinical care they need to know a lot about hospital culture they need to know a lot about medical culture they need to be very very health literate and in my view that person is a doctor or a nurse i get 3 4 people a month call me who want to work for me or who want to become patient advocates. And I encourage people who've got five years or so clinical experience as a doctor or as a nurse, you know, you've got to be fairly savvy in the health system to have that particular presence in a, in a meeting or at a bedside. You know, I, I recently had a client at one of the biggest t- teaching hospitals in Sydney and the family rang me up and said, she has terminal cancer, absolutely no hope of a cure. She weighs 41 kilos, I think she weighed at the time. And, you know, she's in the kind of pain that no animal would be in or left in. And we've just had a meeting with the palliative care and the pain management team. And they've both said, we can do no more. We can do no more. And we don't, We just don't know what to do. We cannot go and visit her because it's too painful. We cannot not go and visit her because it's too painful. Can it be true that one of the biggest teaching hospitals in this city is telling us that our daughter cannot get any relief from this kind of pain? And I I went in, I listened to all the conversations, I heard pretty much the same thing except that one of the doctors I think on the palliative care team said, we're out of options. And Mm -hmm. then I said, no, 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 there is another option. And that is a fairly drastic procedure for sure. And it will render the patient a paraplegic. And the patient's husband just snorted. And I thought he was snorting with derision. Uh, I thought he was Mm -hmm. snorting with horror. And he says, paraplegic, what? What's that got to do with them? Why would we worry about her being a paraplegic? She's never going to step out of bed again. What we want Mm -hmm. is for her to die pain-free. I'm leading him to ask the question on the medical team. I want them to come to him with the solution rather than me force it on them. So I just said, well, you Mm -hmm. know, there is a solution. It would leave her paraplegic. But in the end, she had the procedure which made her paraplegic. Within 12 hours, she was smiling, sitting up in bed, drinking, Laughing mm-hmm. and enjoying her family's company. She died about 10 weeks later, a bit less than that, I think, mm-hmm. but they had such a good 10 weeks. And she yeah. would have howled until that last moment if that family hadn't, you know, sort of stepped in and said, Can this be true? Are we really hearing the only options? And that's why a health trained advocate is the person who, who knows what's out there and what's possible. What is quite useful is. People who are very attuned to the patient or to the needs of patients for patient advocacy are on hospital staff and they, if you like, work as spotters for people who are getting into trouble or who Mm -hmm. might need expert patient advocacy help. And that is something that I would think somebody with a lot of experience in a system would be used to. They would be very valuable in saying, oh gosh, you're talking like me a year ago or Look, I know someone who's exactly in your situation and I think your concerns are really valid. I think that these are a matter that, you, uh, you know, that I should ask somebody else to come and see you about. That is invaluable because as a frontline non, non-professional person in a way, uh, you're likely to have people open up to you a lot in that role.
1: So from what you've said, health-trained advocates are incredibly important. There's a real reason why you are health-trained first. Yeah. And it sounds like also the opportunities for people with lived experience are evolving. We have some, but we're not completely aware of uh, the possibilities yet.
0: Courses for courses. If you want somebody to have the authority and the knowledge to make a difference, then you, you need to get somebody who's qualified, experienced, and has the knowledge. And that's going to be a professional patient advocate. And that's you know,
1: where I come from. So we do unfortunately need to start to wrap up. Sure. But before we finish, we are going to do the thesis questions. Okay. These are the questions that I ask everybody. And when I say system in the questions, I mean healthcare system, political system, social, community, okay, whatever system affects our health and wellness basically. So the first question is, what do you think is good and working currently in the system?
0: Well, I think the expertise uh, and the technical ability that's out there is phenomenal. I have rarely encountered a health professional or a health facility that isn't capable of delivering excellent care. I think the big disconnect is between their willingness or their ability to deliver it. So if you go to Hospital A, you could have the most superb experience and outcome. You could go to Hospital A and you could have an absolutely awful outcome. And the difference could be how well your healthcare was managed. So were you as a person and were your goals managed to be achieved? So Did you get a good health outcome? Were you treated properly within the system decently? Were your goals and needs at the forefront? So did you come out the other end of this experience with a good health outcome and well treated and well managed? There's a huge difference between treatment, which is what comes in a pill cup or what happens in theatre or what you go to radiology for, and management which is, did you wait four weeks for the results by which time it was a bit too late? Or did Dr. A not report to Dr. B the findings of some test? Or did you find that you sat in a ward for so long that you got a hospital-acquired pneumonia? Or was your aunt discharged way too early for somebody in her condition? So in my mind, the fantastic things that are there is the potential. It is way greater, the potential for great outcomes than it was when I first started my training. I think that the management way back when I did my training was better.
1: The next question is, if you could change the system in any way, what would you change? I think I would
0: just try and change the focus from this health disease model to a patient model. Now, I know that I said to you before, every hospital has this on their front page. But in actuality, if patients do try and be square pegs in round holes, they will soon find themselves out of sync with their providers. And that's not right patients are people, they need their goals and their wishes to be met. And two people who have exactly the same disease and exactly the same treatment may have very different outcomes from their perspective. And the system needs to be able to individualize care a lot better than it does.
1: So the next question is, is there a silver lining or what has been your biggest lesson that this experience as a health professional has given you? I
0: think that what I would take away from my experience as a patient advocate is that a lot of people who come to me have what they believe are insoluble problems or barriers within the health system. And in my whole time since beginning of 2013, I have only had one instance where I haven't been able to overcome the problem that existed through collaboration and communication. So to put it in a nutshell i think all problems most problems are solvable but it will often take somebody to intervene for you to bring about the solution
1: what does quality of life mean to you oh, what does it mean to the patient what does it mean to my
0: clients that's what i think you know i mean I, yeah my husband and i have totally different viewpoints about quality of life. I get where he's coming from. I don't agree with him, but I get where he's coming from. You know, two people living under the same roof. You know, he's a doctor. He knows, you know, what I know. He's not an advocate, so he doesn't know a lot about advocacy and seeing things from a patient's perspective. But I think that what you need to consider is what does the patient want? You know, as long as they don't want anything illegal, Mm -hmm. then they're entitled to achieve whatever their goals are achievable goals you know that I can't say to people well you know I'm going to grind up I have newt on your behalf and we're going to (laughs) attempt to get a a cure for something but you know we can head together down a a fairly evidence-based path then I think whatever the patient wants is what should happen and I'll help them find the way to get there.
1: And how do you define quality of life for yourself?
0: I need to wake up and want to stay awake all day doing things that I enjoy doing. Now, as I have said to my husband, one day I'm going to be in a nursing home and one of these precious little great nieces or nephews is going to come and whiz me around the block and I'm going to have the fun day of my life at that time of my life. Mm -hmm. My husband says, oh, no, I don't think so. That's not for me. That would be my idea of hell." So Mm -hmm. for me, it's very much focused on the expectation that I'll extract some joy from, you know, most moments in the day. I don't expect to be vibrant, physically well, in control, any of those things, but still think I'll have a quality of life I look forward to.
1: What do you wish people knew about your experience as an advocate? I wish people knew how
0: valuable a patient's own perspective of their life and their health is. I wish they knew that Susan is coming from her wants and needs and goals, from a completely valid, totally valuable perspective. And I wish people knew that that was a fair thing and something that needed to be fostered. I wish people knew that. I wish people didn't think first about, can this be done? Should this be done? What's our role in this? I wish they just paused and said, I am you. I'm going to walk a mile in your shoes just for 10 minutes here in my head. And I'm going to try and see why you've just said what you've said and where I might be in trying to achieve your goals for you.
1: So what do you wish people would say to support you and you as an advocate? But I'd also love to hear what do you wish people would say or do to support your clients? What's the sort of support you wish you would see more?
0: I do often see this, but it usually happens because suddenly the patient has turned up with an advocate. But what I love is a surgeon or a physician or a nurse, some provider say, talk to me, tell me about it. What brings you here? In a way that totally diffuses any possibility of confrontation or pressure. I want people to say to somebody, Susan, how is it being Susan at the moment? What's mm-hmm. the Susan world all about and how, how is it? And then I don't want them to butt in or start fiddling with their pens or looking at their watches. I just want them to genuinely get their head around how Susan is about being Susan, what Susan wants for Susan. I just want a de-escalation of the momentum and the power imbalance in the health system and aged care, of course.
1: And do you feel like you need any different support at all as an advocate? I haven't thought about that. I
0: don't think so. I mean, that there's a certain amount of knee-jerk opposition to the idea that somebody would engage a professional advocate. And sometimes you've got to quickly disarm that concern in the first few minutes of a meeting, like I said, about the chap who is going to be turfed into a nursing home. That... Palliative Care Hospital has set up so many barriers. Now exactly what has happened just today for that patient is exactly what should have happened and that is that the family have had an extra week During which time they found a perfectly suitable nursing home, an absolutely ideal nursing home. That nursing home could have got a five star review on Google, sorry, that palliative care on Google or in anywhere else, and it could have been just such a good outcome, but it is going to be way less than perfect. That family is going to go, I think, to the HCCC. I will support them, I'm not encouraging them, but. I will support them if they do. I think that they have been subjected to a process that is now going to be part of this chap's dying and it should never have come to that. As I said at a meeting the other day at the palliative care hospital, we are all agreed that this chap is going to die and our role, all of us, is to get to that point with dignity, support, collaboration, whatever it takes, And in theory, everybody just nodded as if we were at church. Oh, yes, very good idea. Within (laughs) an hour at the end of that meeting, the hospital administrators were on to me uh, on the phone about how they had discovered that they were not obliged to collaborate with me. That's not true. And legally, they finally Mm. came to understand that. But they were trying to erect barriers.
1: So my last question is, how has this experience changed your humanness? Or your perspective of being a human.
0: You know, I think until I left my serious job as an ICU nurse and became what I like to think of as a sort of a hobby ICU nurse and then morphed into a patient advocate, I think I embodied some of the worst characteristics of that system. I think although I was gradually changing into a person who wasn't so 100% sure that the public health or the private health system was perfect, it took that change in my time of life or perspective to change me a bit as a person. And so I think I'm a different health professional these days. I no longer am so sure that the health system's got it right, that doctors are gods, you know. Yeah. Maybe I've lost a bit of confidence, you know, the confidence of being the person in that system. I'm doing it differently. And, you know, those ads I'm about to make a commercial prompt here, you know, the Toyota Mm -hmm. moment, I have this habit after I've done patient advocacies and they work out well. And about 90% of them work out fantastically well, And then I just have my Toyota moment where I think, oh, what a feeling, wow, Mm -hmm. because that was the text I dreamt of getting. I had one this morning and Mm -hmm. I just sat down and I went, oh, yes, that's why I did this. I just love the idea that those people feel so much better and that the outcome was so much better than it was going to be if they hadn't understood they needed a bit of support at this stage.
1: It broadens the team and I think when you go through this stuff, having a team around you is just so, yeah. so important yeah. Yeah. and makes such a difference.
0: And it doesn't need to be top-heavy. There needs to be a lack of this huge power hierarchy in the team. The patient needs all their family, if anybody, needs to be at the top of it and everybody else needs to be the how-to people.
1: Well, thank you so much for speaking with me. I really appreciate everything you've been generous enough to share and really value you taking the time to chat with me. You're welcome, Sasha. Good luck with the podcast. Thanks so much. See you later welcome back so that was dorothy kamika she really is such a wealth of knowledge and you know her advice is fantastic if you need an advocate google independent patient advocates in your city and even you know looking at how to better advocate for yourself and look at the people around you so that we are prepared but you know i think it expands from being necessary in just a patient setting to sort of being in you know, a life setting how we how we become more empowered in ourselves and how we build that stronger community around us. So thank you so so much for listening today. Give us a follow on Instagram and Facebook. Join the Facebook group. The group is called The Humans of Too Human for Words. Uh, If you haven't already, subscribe to the podcast and download the episodes. You can get rid of them when you're done listening. And give us a five-star rating and review. You know, as I've said, I just hear that the other stars don't work. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more than that to help keep the lights on, you can become a Patreon subscriber. There are plenty of perks to come. I'd love to give a really big thank you to Monique Egan for our super rad logo for the super rad theme song for the music, Sean Fox and Alex Clark of Artie Rex for the vocals and Chris Bennett for all additional editing, polishing, putting the pieces together and counselling me through putting this into the world and just all around smashing it. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time. And remember... We're all humans